general side note on this episode after I have recorded the entire thing. This probably took me the longest to record out of any episode so far because I kept having weird technical issues and, like, my printer turned itself on and started making weird noises. My cat started going crazy. You can tell the point that I gave up on fighting the background noises, but just be forewarned, there are some strange background noises. To the best of my knowledge, they are living things or electric things, not ghosts. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Paranormal Northwest, a podcast all about the history and the paranormal of the Pacific Northwest. Join me as I tell stories of this great region, the history, the people who live here, and those who may have never left. I hope everyone had a great holiday season and 2022 is off to a great start. I have some lofty goals for this year and I can't wait to share them with you all. Just not yet. I also want to take a moment to plug our merchandise. There is a link on Facebook and Instagram, so grab yourself a coffee cup or even a sweater, and I appreciate all of the support. I would also like to give a huge shout out to one of my biggest supporters in this endeavor, and I happen to change the release date of this episode to fall on his birthday. So, Grandpa, I am dedicating this episode to you. Happy birthday. So now, on to what you're really here for. This episode is taking us back to Oregon, to the Geyser Grand Hotel. So first, let's dive into the location of the Geyser Grand Hotel. Located in eastern Oregon, Baker City is approximately 50 miles from the Idaho border. With an estimated population of just under 10,000 people, Baker City is also the county seat of Baker County, a distinction it has held since 1868. Baker City, Oregon, was platted in 1865, but grew slowly. The city was named after United States Senator Edward D. Baker, who was the senator for Oregon. Baker is the only living U.S. senator to be killed in battle, and he died in 1861 during the Civil War. Gold had been discovered in October of that year, of 1861, just a few miles south of present-day Baker City by four miners. By the time Baker City was platted, just four years later, all of that gold had already been mined. It wasn't until 1884 that the population of the city began to grow. This was because the Oregon Short Line Railroad came to the city at that time. Railroads were big business in the West in the late 1800s. Having a railroad in an area could make or break it. Fortunes were earned and lost by those who gambled on where the railroad would go. So let's take a sideways deep dive into the railroads and how they impacted not just the West, but the entire United States. The Oregon Short Line Railroad was a subsidiary of the Union Pacific Railroad. It is nearly impossible to hear stories of the Old West without hearing some reference to the Union Pacific Railroad. The Union Pacific was part of the Transcontinental Railroad, or what it became to be known as the Overland Route. Started in 1863, the project's goal was to connect the eastern part of the United States to the Pacific Coast. The Transcontinental Railroad stretched from Council Bluffs, Iowa to San Francisco Bay. The Transcontinental Railroad was built in three sections. The western section, which went from San Francisco to Sacramento, the central section, which went from Sacramento to Promontory Summit in the Utah Territory, 
in the eastern section, comprising the longest stretch from Council Bluffs, Iowa to Promontory Summit. The meeting of the western sections of the railroad and the eastern section at Promontory Summit has often been immortalized in western films and television shows. The famous image of two locomotives facing one another is an integral part of the history of the West. Today, if you have ever traveled on a train, there is something so simple that was established during the production of the Transcontinental Railroad that we take for granted. That is the width of the tracks. Prior to the development of the Transcontinental Railroad, there was not a standard track width or track gauge in the United States. Because of this, different parts of the country had different sized railroad tracks. The northern part of the United States had been using the same gauge as Great Britain, while the southern part of the United States had been using larger tracks. This meant that travel between the two sections of the country meant literally changing part of the train cars. If you are familiar with the timeline of United States history, you may have realized that the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad started during the Civil War. Even though the railroad was being built by private companies, it was being planned and partially funded by the United States government, which was part of the northern United States. Therefore, the standard gauge that was used in the northern part of the United States was used for the Transcontinental Railroad. So this is a Rachel side note. I have a degree in United States history, and I could go way more in depth on the importance of the railroad during the Civil War, but I will refrain from it at this time. However, if anyone is interested, please let me know. I would be happy to do a bonus episode about it. So back to our story. The creation of the Transcontinental Railroad also held large political and social expectations. As the nation was attempting to rebuild after the Civil War, many Americans still felt as though they were at war, especially in the South. By rallying the nation behind a single cause, westward expansion, the government hoped it would help to rejoin the nation. The Transcontinental Railroad was the largest public works project the nation had ever undertaken, and some argue that it still is the largest the United States government has had. As I mentioned before, the construction was completed by private railroad companies, but those companies were funded by the United States government. The railroad companies were not just paid to construct the railroad, but were actually given land to do so. The railroads were given approximately 200 feet of land on either side of the tracks in alternating sections, with the U.S. government maintaining the opposite side of the tracks. Think of it as a checkerboard. Say the railroad has the square of land on the north side of the track and the government has the land on the south side. The next 200 feet, it's switched, with the railroad having the south and the government having the north. This arrangement had multiple purposes. First, this allowed the railroad to construct necessary places such as depots and rail yards. However, the railroads were given a huge amount of land. The amount of land given to them during this agreement was greater than the state of Texas. And Texas is big, really big. The second purpose of this arrangement was to encourage settlement along the railroad. The railroad companies didn't need all the land they were given, so they were able to sell most of it to settlers. This was an amazing deal for the railroad companies. They were given the land for free. They were paid by the government to build the railroad, and they then sold much of the land they got for free. Needless to say, the railroad companies made a lot of money off the Transcontinental Railroad. By having this overland route by railroad, it allowed for the population to explode in the West. 
However, traveling by railroad was expensive and many travelers still chose to travel by wagon. Many who worked on the construction of the railroad did so as a way to move into other areas. The western part of the railroad, encompassing the western and central portion, was constructed largely by Chinese immigrants. This was also the most dangerous portion of the railroad to construct. So bringing it back to modern times, fun another side note, I recently saw a video on TikTok where someone, I'm assuming from the eastern part of the United States, showed a map of the U.S. with a line drawn down the Mississippi River. They said that if the U.S. were to have another civil war with, S versus West, with West versus East, the East would win. However, the video I also saw had a response to that. This other individual, who I assume is from the Western United States, made a few observations, such as the hardy stock of our Western U.S. heritage, but mostly she pointed out we have mountains and pardon my language, big ass mountains, the Rockies, the Sierra Nevadas, the Cascades, the coastal range, all big ass mountains. We here in the Pacific Northwest and really the West in general are just kind of used to our mountains. I live within an hour of Mount Rainier and on a clear day can see it pretty easily. The term the mountain is out is familiar to most people across the Pacific Northwest. We're sort of desensitized to the fact that our mountains are really, really big. So yeah, we've got some big ass mountains. Traveling through the mountains today is a piece of cake, comparatively. I went over mountain passes, multiple passes over the holidays, and although there was snow, we didn't have to get out of the car and dig our car out of the snow. We even actually made pretty good time. But constructing a railroad through these mountains was incredibly difficult and dangerous. The Sierra Nevadas, the mountain range of Northern California and Southern Oregon, is impressive. Today, they are home to the retreats of Lake Tahoe and Lake Shasta. But to travelers looking to make a better life in the West, they were of the last large hurdle to overcome. And sadly, many did not. You ever heard of the Donner Party? That's the Sierra Nevadas. The construction of the Transcontinental Railroad from the West had to go through these mountains. Many lives were lost in this process, mostly those of Chinese immigrants working from San Francisco. The Transcontinental Railroad was completed on May 10, 1869, when the last spike was struck into place at Promontory Summit. This spike was made of solid gold and was struck into place with a silver hammer. The spike was immediately removed so it wouldn't be stolen and is now on display at Stanford University. Once the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, Numerous short-line railroads spread up connecting to it. A short-line railroad is a smaller railroad company that usually operates over a short distance in comparison to the larger national railroads. Up until the creation of the Transcontinental Railroad, nearly all railway lines were short lines. So jumping back to how exactly this all connects to Baker City, Oregon and the Geyser Hotel. Baker City really started to build up in 1884 once one of these short lines was built through it. The Oregon Short Line Railroad, or OSL, ran through Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Montana, and Oregon. The OSL ran for 106 years, from 1881 to 1987. The goal of the line was to connect the western landlocked and mountainlocked states to the shipping center of Portland. The OSL was a subsidiary of the Union Pacific. So what exactly does that mean? It means the Oregon Short Line Railroad was part of the Union Pacific umbrella of rail lines. 
The name indicated that it ran primarily through, wait for it, Oregon. The line started from the Maine Pacific Union line in Wyoming, then wound its way to Oregon. So, getting back to Baker City. Baker City was located in the perfect position to grow and build at the end of the 19th century. The railroad was cutting right through it, and even though the gold that had been discovered was mostly recovered, people were staying in the area. On November 12, 1884, Baker City was officially connected to Portland and the West Coast, as well as the eastern part of the country when the short line linked up to the city. Through the late 1880s and into the 1890s, Baker City began to build rapidly. A lumber mill was constructed on the south side of the city, more short lines were built for the lumber operations, and these even facilitated more mining in the area. Gold was found again, along with silver, and more people came to Baker City. The city itself became more developed, with wooden structures making way for brick and stone construction. At the turn of the 20th century, Baker City was a true Victorian city. It was even known as the Queen City of the Inland Empire. By 1900, Baker City was the largest city between Salt Lake City and Portland, and the third largest city in Oregon. The name was officially changed to just Baker in 1910, but that was short-lived, as it was officially changed back to Baker City in 1989. Even though Baker City was well inland from Portland, it had a small, growing, international population. Most of these were of Chinese descent. Going back to the Transcontinental Railroad, much of the western portion was constructed by Chinese immigrants. These men worked incredibly hard on the railroad, with many dying in the process. Those who survived were divided. Some stayed permanently, while others took their earnings and went home. With the labor and mining industries growing in the region after the completion of the railroad, many of those Chinese immigrants decided to stay and work in those burgeoning industries. A small section of the downtown area housed most of these immigrants. However, by the 1940s, most of them had left Baker City. The mining industry especially was a large part of the development of Baker City. Mines were bought and sold in the hotels and brothels of the city, often with little or no regard to those who worked in them. Mining conditions were harsh, and the Chinese immigrants who worked in them were treated even worse. A Chinatown was established in Baker City in 1864, after the start of the gold rush. This area of the city encompassed merchants, butchers, physicians, cooks, woodcutters, gardeners, gamblers, trailers, and of course, prostitutes. When mining was difficult, or the weather forced miners out of the mountains, the population of the Baker City Chinatown swelled. However, not all of the Chinese population of Baker City lived and worked in the Chinatown. The Chinese community was involved throughout Baker City. My printer is freaking out. But I've already recorded this section five times, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> A lasting remnant of the Chinese population of Baker City is the Baker City Chinese Cemetery. Most of the remains at the site have been re repatriated back to China, but many suspect there are many unmarked graves in the cemetery and surrounding area. But the reasoning behind why there even is a Chinese cemetery is heartbreaking. These men were still not seen as people, even though most of them were incredibly hard workers who came from their homes to make a better life for themselves, they were still seen by many as not human. They were 
There were incidents across the West of racism and harsh treatment towards Chinese immigrants. The federal government even issued the Chinese Exclusion Act in the late 1800s that wasn't repealed until 1940. Another lesser known and somewhat harder to find remnant of this Chinese history are the Chinese walls. These are walls right off the highway that measure approximately 15 feet wide and 12 feet high, winding through the forest. These walls were created by Chinese miners during the mining process. They went through every creek and were extremely thorough in their search for gold, creating these walls in the process. Today, those walls are a lasting reminder of the desire to achieve the American dream and what many were willing to sacrifice to get it. Now, finally, we're getting to the history of the Geyser Grand Hotel. The Geyser Grand Hotel was built in 1889 and opened in November of that year. It was originally owned by the Baker Brothers and was named the Hotel Warsauer. It, at the time of construction, the hotel was extremely elegant and befitting of the Queen of the Inland Empire. The hotel consisted of three stories of brick with glass windows, electric lights, baths, and an elevator, the third west of the Mississippi. Nowadays, we take those things for granted. I mean, you're using electricity to listen to this, and most people have running water. But at the end of the 19th century, these were incredible luxuries for many people, especially those living in the West. The El Hotel was also furnished with many features we still find decadent today, such as marble floors, crystal chandeliers, and stained glass ceilings. The hotel was purchased by the Geyser family between 1895 and 1900. I saw conflicting times, but most stories I found said they acquired the hotel in 1900. Regardless, they closed the hotel for renovations for a few years. Those renovations occurred in 1900 and 1901, with the new Geyser Grand Hotel opening on January 1st, 1908. Sorry, 1902. So even though the Geyser family purchased the hotel, the main person is Albert. So Albert Geyser was born to German immigrants on February 10th, 1863, near Denver, Colorado. In 1870, the Geyser family moved across the West to Nevada, then Utah, and finally California. While in California, Albert's father, who was a minor, although he wasn't very successful there. Upon completing his education, Albert joined in his father's mining pursuits until 1881, when he made his way to Bakers County, Oregon. Albert had heard the stories of gold and silver being found in the area and vowed to earn his riches. The entire Geyser family had great success in Oregon in the mining industry, allowing them to purchase solely or in part several mines. The most famous of these was the Bonanza Mine. Yes, that Bonanza Mine. In 1891, Albert and his family, in a joint effort called the Geyser Estate, purchased the Bonanza Mine. The mine had been discovered in the 1870s and is arguably one of, if not the most famous mines in the West. The Geyser family built up the mine, constructing mills, boarding houses for the miners and other workers, as well as stores and offices. Albert was the managing partner of the Geyser Estate, meaning he was essentially in charge of all of it. He was held in high esteem by the men who worked for him, as well as other mining companies. He was even elected the president of the Mining and Irrigation Congress of the Northwest. It's a pretty big name. The Geyser Grand Hotel was the central hub for mining activity in Baker City. In its elegant ballrooms, mines were bought and sold, with little to no regard to those who actually worked in them. Being a mining town, Baker City had many brothels. 
Baker City was once known as the brothel capital of the West. However, the Geyser Grand Hotel was a classy, elegant place, a jewel of the West. However, in the basement of the hotel, remnants of the city's past show how interconnected the hotel was to the brothels. Walking through the basement, there appear to be windows that look out, not onto the street outside the hotel, but into underground tunnels. These tunnels weave underneath Baker City and date back to the 1880s. The tunnels linked the hotel and other businesses not only to the brothels, but were also a way of transportation throughout the city. As the Chinese Exclusion Act was in force, the gates to the Baker City Chinatown were locked at dusk. This meant the Chinese were not allowed out of Chinatown at night, and if for some reason they didn't make it back before the gates were locked, they were locked out for the night. These tunnels that still lie underneath the Geyser Grand Hotel allowed these Chinese individuals a way to safely get home at night. Over the years, these tunnels also proved useful for a place of storage, especially during the Prohibition era of, era of the 1920s. Upstairs, the hotel was a place of luxury and extravagance in the sometimes wild and backwards West. With its European furnishings and modern amenities, some people who visited never wanted to leave. And maybe they never did. Paranormal Activity at the Hotel The Geyser Grand Hotel has had many paranormal investigations over the years, most being since the 1990s when an extensive $7 million renovation was completed on the hotel. A resident specter of the hotel appears to be a lady in blue, who many believe to originally have been named Annabelle. Annabelle appears in a blue dress walking up and down the main staircase. The main staircase is grand and regal with wood wrapped all around and an ornate iron railing. Along the wall on the first landing, there's a giant mirror, easily measuring 10 feet tall and probably four feet wide. Workers, guests, and other visitors to the hotel have reported seeing Annabelle in the mirror, but when they turn to look, she isn't there. I don't know about you, but seeing a ghost in a mirror behind me is probably one of my biggest fears. It's why I don't look in the mirror when I'm washing my face. Is that just a me thing? Or maybe I've just watched too many horror movies. Anyway, Annabelle also had a reserved chair in the bar while she was alive and can sometimes be seen sitting in the bar. She also has a bit of a mischievous spark, being accused of often moving guests' items and even eating their food. However, she has never seemed to be harmful, but simply appears to still be enjoying her time at the hotel. And that background you're hearing is not a ghost cat. It is my actual cat who somehow got his second wind. So, that, it's a cat, it's an actual cat, not a ghost cat. Other activity at the hotel that has been reported includes the specters of cowboys riding horses up and down the halls, something that actually did occur prior to the restoration in the 1990s. Guests and staff have also reported seeing a woman who appears in 1920s style clothing that is dancing, a young girl, which kid ghosts are a big nope from me, and finally, a dog. The dog seems to be the most frightening specter of them all, who watches guests sleep and even jumps on them. The dog seem, does seem to be playful, but is apparently large. And if you've ever had a large dog happily jump on you, it's kind of jarring, but especially if it's a dead large dog, that's really jarring. The tunnels beneath the hotel are also reportedly haunted. Paranormal investigation groups visit the hotel regularly and often record voices and movement there when no one else is around. The hotel was featured on an episode of the show Ghost Mine. 
In the episode, they dove deep into the connection between the hotel and the Chinese population of their city. During their investigation, they believe they made contact with multiple spirits down in the tunnels that were Chinese. However you fall on the spectrum of belief in paranormal activity, make sure to visit the Geyser Grand Hotel the next time you are in Baker City. The hotel has been remarkably restored and is a glimpse back into the past of the Old West. That's a wrap on the Geyser Grand Hotel. Next time, we're headed to Idaho and the Howells Opera House. So please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, at ParaNWPod. All one word. I share photos and fun facts about our locations and our episodes. Also, check out our merchandise. Until next time, bye.